Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret history and little-known facts behind your favorite music, movies, TV shows, and more. We are your Rajas of Research. My name's Jordan Runtog. And I'm Alex Heigl. And today we're going to talk about American Pie, Don McLean's 8-minute and 42-second epic, which topped the charts 50 years ago this year. The song is a kaleidoscopic journey through the best of the boomer years, using the death of rock pioneer Buddy Holly as a metaphor for the death of a generation's innocence. McLean described the song in recent years as, quote, a rock and roll dream sequence about an America that was coming apart at the seams during the tumultuous 60s, giving way to the cynicism of the 70s. Now, it's a song that's earned a fair bit of scorn over the years, some from my co-host Alex Heigl, for essentially being the ur-text of <laughs> boomer hagiography, but its influence is undeniable. The Recording Industry of America and the National Endowment of the Arts cited American Pie as the fifth greatest song of the 20th century, just under Over the Rainbow, White Christmas, This Land is Your Land, and Respect by Otis Redding, so not bad company. The historian Douglas Brinkley has described it as an essential Americana poem emanating wistful recollection, blues valentine, and youthful protest rolled into one. Ah! Heigl, what do you think about this track? <laughs> I'm going to bite my tongue in half throughout the course of this while you read off your cherished collection of pro-American pie chestnuts. I f***ing hate this song. Why? I hate it. Uh, what it what represents or what it sounds like. What do you mean, why? It's bad on every level. I don't know. I thought Margaritaville was the nadir of our working relationship. <laughs> but this is Oh god. This is this is a new low. <laughs> well, I really don't have a segue out of that. Um <laughs> So I'm just going to pretend that you didn't say all that and maybe I'll cut it. You know, Michael, <laughs> the thing that's so interesting to me about American Pie <laughs> is that it's such an evocative history lesson told through these allegories 
And it's one that's palatable for the masses. Uh, the music critic for The Guardian, Alexis Petritus, has described American Pie as, quote, the accessible farewell to the 50s and 60s. Bob Dylan talked to the counterculture in dense, cryptic, apocalyptic terms, but Don McLean says similar ominous things in a pop language that a mainstream listener could understand. The chorus is so good that it lets you wallow in the confusion and wistfulness of that moment and be comforted at the same time. It's Bubblegum Dylan. And I feel like accessibility is an important word for Don McLean. Uh, his other big hit is Vincent, parentheses, Starry Starry Night, his tribute to Vincent Van Gogh, an artist that Don McLean was drawn to because he felt that he was really one of the most accessible painters. And this was due to his deep well of pain. And I shudder to think what you're about to say to what I'm about to say. Uh, like Van Gogh, Don McLean had a lot of pain in his life. Uh, he classifies himself as, quote, a blue guy. Good. This, yeah, this is, this is going to be fun to edit together as I'm going to try to cut your bits of bile out and stitch my, my boomer-loving. <laughs> your sunny, sunny over-intellectualizing this song. I just, I, God, yeah, I don't know, man. It, it just drives me. I mean, did you not hear this song f***ing enough? Well, I actually hear, I'm probably doing this in a certain ways, an apology to my father who... When mm. I was a toddler, sat through an entire Don McLean concert that he was like doing at some fair. And right as he was about to finally launch into American Pie, a.k.a. the only song that everyone sat through the whole concert for, I started to scream and cry and they had to take me out of there. And so he missed hearing the song. And you had good every, taste. Every time I hear that song. Yeah. <laughs> so now I, 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 have, I have this, probably like a lot of the boomers who hear it, this deep well of regret and sadness that I think about. The only thing my dad ever did was when this song came on, he would recite to me the body version of it that he and his <laughs> Hesher friends came up with. Well, speaking of the various interpretations, including the one by your father of this song, <laughs> Don McLean has been pretty tight-lipped about the precise meaning of his 868 words, by my count. But there's a new documentary on the horizon for Paramount Plus on July 19th, in which he claims to reveal a lot more about the creation of the song, which is interesting to one of us. Um, <laughs> but until then, this episode will be the final word on the history and interpretation of American Pie. So keep listening to learn about the secret choir of celebrities that sang on the chorus, the truly insane number of edits it took to stitch this eight and a half minute epic together, the non-Buddy Holly rock pioneer who inspired Don McLean to write it, and why Buddy Holly took that fatal flight in the first place. Plus, We'll do our interpretation of the dense lyrical poetry. So without further ado, here is everything you didn't know about Don McLean's American Pie. Okay. You're really going to start this off for me? Yeah, I am. Okay. American Pie has its roots in Don McLean's childhood, spent in the New York City suburb of New Rochelle in the 1950s. It is a very cute little town in affluent Westchester County, immortalized in your favorite era of pop culture as the setting of the Dick Van Dyke show. Mm. And, you know, given the rosy glow of this era that uh, American Pie is filtered through, it's easy to assume that Don had enjoyed uh, the quintessential 50s American upbringing in this upper middle class town. But apparently that was not the case. He has said that he hated growing up there because the citizens were snobbish and judgmental about everything. Quote, if you didn't drive the right car, if you didn't have enough money, if you didn't wear the right shoes. I hated those f***ers. <laughs> I feel like that would endear him to you. Class warrior attitude. No. 
right. <laughs> and then he became everything he hated. Uh, McLean first got into music when he became bedridden due to asthma as a boy when he started pouring over the music of Frank Sinatra and the true starring figure of this song, Buddy Holly. Um, there's an entire listicle waiting to be written about musicians who were bedridden as a formative era of their music. Um, probably your favorite, Ringo Starr. His appendix burst as a little boy. He spent a year in the hospital where, in a truly grim Dickensian turn, staff arranged a makeshift band in the children's ward. Yeah, it's sweet. Is it? Good for their motor uh, skills because they've spent a lot of time in bed. Oh. Yeah. yeah, Ringo's first drumming was done in a hospital cabinet with a makeshift cotton bobbin. Cat Stevens wrote a bunch of his songs while recovering from tuberculosis in the 60s. I'm pretty sure Lindsey Buckingham developed his finger style while laid up in a hospital bed. Didn't Joni Mitchell do that too? Or was that just a result of polio? Not necessarily while she was suffering from it. I'm not sure if she took it up as a form of therapy, but that's where she gets all her weird chords from. Mm. Um, Which I think also we talked about with uh, Neil Young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, think of all the great music you have to chalk up to bedridden children. <laughs> think of how much good music we've lost thanks to Netflix. Now kids can just sit in bed and watch Minions and not learn how to write American Pie. <laughs> I'd consider that a blessing. Uh, apparently he took opera lessons with what? His one octave range voice. <laughs> I uh, taught himself how to play the acoustic guitar at the age of 14, probably, uh, I'm guessing, because of his age is a corollary of the the folk boom. He spent much of the 60s playing the Greenwich Village folk scene and coffee shops where Pete Seeger and the rest of his band, the Weavers, took Don under their wing, mentored him. But despite that cosign, um, and in what is the second kind of instance of a pathetically low-selling debut record we've talked about in a week, Don uh, named his debut album Tapestry, came out in 1970, a year before another little record you might know, Carol King's Tapestry, one of the best-selling records of all time. Don McLean's album was rejected by a whopping 72 record labels before he was signed. His record includes Castles in the Air and And I Love Her So, which uh, Elvis and Glenn Campbell recorded. Perry Como's version was nominated for a Grammy. Jesus. Uh, title track, Tapestry, not the Carol King song. Here's a great example of Don McLean being a piece of <laughs> um, He says this song inspired the creation of Greenpeace, um, which you made a, a bullet point in here, and I went on to Greenpeace, their site. He's not mentioned once, uh, although it is on his site, so that's his version of it. He's um, talked about it in interviews a number of times about being very Of course he has. People keep interviewing him for some reason. This is from Greenpeace's site. In 1971, a small group of activists set sail to the Amchitka Island off of Alaska to try and stop a U.S. nuclear weapons test. The money for the mission was raised with a concert starring James Taylor, Joni Mitchell, and Phil Oaks. Phil Ox? I always Phil forget. Oaks. Phil Oaks. Their fishing boat was called the Greenpeace. Hmm. I don't know how Don got his name in there, but, you know, just want to fact check him. Uh, but this album sold poorly. He went into the studio to record his follow-up, and one uh, label executive allegedly told his producer, look, this McLean ass was a no-talent jerk. Your budget is 25 grand. If you can make it for 20 grand, I'll split the other five with you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the music industry. What a hellhole. The producer, a man named Ed Freeman, who we will get to later, turned down this offer. 
Don was so broke that he had a day job playing music for the public school system in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, playing banjo for the children in kindergarten, to which I say, suffer the little children. Uh, now, many people credit, or in your case, blame Buddy Holly with the creation of American Pie, but the spark was provided by another early rock pioneer, Phil Everly of the Everly Brothers. Now, in 1969, Don McLean was playing the Newport Folk Festival, which was the legendary annual concert series where Bob Dylan famously went electric four years earlier, and Don ran into the Everly Brothers, who were also on the bill. So Don went up to Phil Everly and did the thing that I'm sure all famous people just love, where they get approached by strangers who ask them about other celebrities, their celebrity friends, not even their own stuff, but other people they might know. And speaking to AZ Central earlier in 2022, Don McLean says he went up to Phil Everly and started peppering him with questions about his musical hero, Buddy Holly, who he ran in the same circles with in the 50s. Specifically, Don wanted to know more about the way that Buddy died. And he said, I know you knew Buddy Holly. And like a kid, I was just like a kid. He said, what happened? Can you tell me what happened? I wanted to know more than just he got on the plane. And Phil Everly <laughs> Tell me about his death. Well, yeah, okay. That's kind of a weird, yeah, I, I get that. Um, and Phil relayed some really heartbreakingly humanizing details about the plane crash that, though over-mythologized, did in fact change the course of music history. The day the music died, very real thing. And Phil Everly said, in short, that after weeks on the road touring in a bus, Buddy Holly chartered a plane to get to his next destination early so that he could do some laundry. That's just, I, that breaks my heart. Uh, and now we're going to go back in time a little bit and do a brief history lesson on the death of Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and JP, the Big Bopper Richardson, the famous day the music died, February 3rd, 1959. Um, in February 1959, Buddy Holly was in the midst of a winter dance party package tour through the Midwest United States with fellow early rock figures, Richie Valens, who made La Bamba a hit and followed it up with the immortal 50s ballad Donna, and is probably best remembered by a certain segment of the population for the Lou Diamond Phillips biopic in the 80s. There was JP, the big bopper Richardson, who's known chiefly for, outside of dying in this plane crash, the pseudo-novelty song Chantilly Lace. And also on the tour was Dion and the Belmonts, who everyone forgets was there, who famously did Teenager in Love, Runaround Sue, great doo-wop icon, and someone named Frankie Sardo, who was also there. I don't know who that is. I love that putting Walk Hard when they're uh, they're like at the Teenage Talent Show. John C. Riley is Teenage Dewey Cox off stage, and they're watching the Big Bopper do the phone shtick. Like, hello, baby, <laughs> this is the Big Bopper calling. And it cuts to them, and they're just all like stone faced. Like, how are we gonna follow that again? There was less music back then, so people coasted. The people were grandfathered in, just making garbage. And we don't talk about it enough because it's been enshrined. <laughs> My God. If these people heard like dubstep, their heads would have exploded. <laughs> Not because dubstep is good, but it, like at least it's interesting. I think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I will say though that they ground it out. This is impressive. These guys were like black flag, man. Yes, the Winter Dance Party Tour was basically a disaster even before the plane crash entered the picture. The musicians dubbed it the Tour from Hell, 
and they weren't kidding. In the grand tradition of DIY gigging groups, there was zero consideration for travel logistics. The gigs were daily and often hundreds of miles apart. So the musicians were just pinballing through the Midwest, often on rural two-lane highways because the interstate hadn't been completed yet. The tour buses, which were essentially rejected school buses, frequently broke down, and they were unheated. And this is the Midwest <laughs> in early February when temperatures were occasionally recorded at negative 35. It was so cold in these buses that one musician came down with frostbite and needed to be hospitalized. And the flu quickly spread through their ranks. And to top things off, there were no roadies. The musicians were expected to load and unload their gear themselves. So by the time Buddy Holly arrived at the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa on February 2nd, 1959, to play what would be his final gig, he was pissed. And rather than face another freezing eight-hour bus ride that night after the show, Buddy chartered a private plane to fly himself and his band up to Fargo, North Dakota for the next day's gig for the princely sum of $36 a person, or $350 in today's money. This flight wasn't cheap. And he wanted to get to Fargo because this would give him some extra time, as I said, to do some laundry and to get some much-needed rest that night. So he hired a tiny single-engine Beechcraft 35 Bonanza, which only seated three passengers in the pilot. And contrary to urban legend, the plane was not called American Pie. It had no name at all. Don McLean made the title up. And also contrary to popular belief, Buddy Holly did not hire the plane just for headliners only, as he says in the La Bamba movie. It was initially just for the two members of his band, Tommy Alsup and future country legend Waylon Jennings, who played bass for Buddy on this tour. And there are numerous versions of how the passengers wound up on that fatal flight. And the most common version is that Richie Valens, who supposedly had a fear of flying, asked Tommy Alsop for a seat on the plane because he was ill-prepared for the cold and didn't even think to bring a winter coat. So he was freezing on this tour the whole time. And instead of telling Richie basically, you know, tough, Tommy Alsop agreed to a coin toss backstage after their gig in Clear Lake, and Richie Valens won. And he was supposedly heard to say, wow, that's the first time I've ever won anything in my life. And then he happily went to the airport to the plane ride that would lead him to his death. <laughs> Waylon Jennings, the other member of Buddy Holly's band, was persuaded to give up his seat on the plane due to the sorry sight of JP, the big bopper Richardson, who'd come down with the flu and wanted to get to the next tour stop early to see a doctor. Uh, supposedly he offered Waylon Jennings a new sleeping bag to keep him warm on the bus to sweeten the deal. So Waylon just took pity on JP and in another possibly apocryphal bit of banter, Buddy supposedly teased him when he found out he wasn't going to fly. Buddy said, well, I hope your old bus freezes up. And Jennings responded, well, I hope your old plane crashes. <laughs> and his last words to his friend Buddy haunted him for the rest of his life. To make matters worse, Waylon had to fill in for Buddy as the lead singer on the final weeks of the tour after his death, which is just brutal. It's like an O. Henry short story. Oh, God, I know. It's just, this whole thing is just so sad. Uh, the plane took off at 12.55 a.m. on the morning of February 3rd, 1959, and crashed around five minutes later in a cornfield. And the cause of the crash is controversial, but believed to be pilot error due to poor weather conditions. And this pilot, who was a young man named Roger Peterson, apparently wasn't properly rated to fly in low visibility scenarios. And this was nighttime. There was lots of wind and snow flurries. He was only 21 years old. Buddy Holly was just 22. And Richie Valens was just 17. Good Lord. Buddy's widowed bride that 
our buddy Don McLean so eloquently sang about, Maria Elna Holly learned of his death on television, and she suffered a miscarriage shortly after, which she attributed to psychological trauma. And Buddy's mother learned of the death through the radio, leading to another ugly scene. And supposedly, I don't know how uh, how much of a myth this is, Buddy's death supposedly led to protocols being put in place where authorities don't release the names of the deceased until the next of kin are notified. And, um, and there was another weird situation. One of the reasons that Tommy Alsup, one of Buddy's bandmates, wanted to get to Fargo early was because his mother had sent him a registered letter to the post office up there, and he wanted to pick it up. So Buddy agreed to go pick it up for him and told him to hand over his ID. And I guess Tommy was taking too long to fish it out of his wallet. So Buddy was just like, just give me your whole wallet. I'll give it back to you. Don't worry. And then when the plane crashed, authorities found this wallet for this guy and searched in vain for his body. So early news reports cited Tommy Alsup among the dead. And I guess a neighbor frantically tried to get in touch with his mother so she wouldn't hear it on TV. But he was all right. And I think he lived until a couple of years ago. My buddy Jeff Nolan, who is the Hard Rock Cafe chief curator, showed me the wallet a few years back. And he cites this as his favorite artifact in the 80,000 items that the Hard Rock has collected in their archives. So interesting bit of uh, rock ephemera there. Also, it was interesting, uh, a few months after the plane crash in this cornfield, they found a gun that they thought maybe belonged to one of the guys on the flight, and they investigated the theory that maybe this gun had gone off in the middle of the flight, and that was responsible for the plane crash. And for some reason, I don't really know why this was, I thought that maybe JP, the Big Bopper Richardson, you have to say his full name, it's like a tribe called Quest. <laughs> they thought that maybe JP was the one who got shot, so they actually, I think they exhumed his body and did, you know, an X-ray of it to search for any kind of bullets and didn't find any fragments. So I think that whole theory was put to rest. But um, yeah, the day that music died, really just one bummer after another. I can't believe he wrote an eight-minute song with nearly a thousand words and didn't get any of those truly tragic details in there. No, with the poetry, there's, there's, <laughs> there's, a, lot, there's a lot of tragedy in that song. We're going to take a quick break. But we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics, in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. 
when I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby Award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Back to dawn to happier climbs, I guess. So having pumped Phil Everly for the graphic details of his friend's death, uh, Don honed in on the detail of laundry, the small scale heartbreaking detail that apparently Holly even took some of his pal's dirty laundry on the plane to, uh, do when he got to the next tour stop ahead of them. Uh, Don, such a, such a, it just humanizes this this event that's become so enshrined yeah. in rock mythology. It's something so like when I learned that recently, just researching this episode, that put a lump in my throat too. Just this kid from Texas wanted a clean shirt. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Don later told AZ Central uh, that blew my mind right there. It brought everything cascading back. Everything had been sort of etched in stone. The photographs, the notes on the back of the record covers had all been static for all of those years. And now suddenly there was this movement. And it all brought him back to 1959 when he had first learned about Buddy's death 10 years earlier, which is possibly where we get the for 10 years we've been on our own line, although that is debated. We'll get into that in a second. Uh, at the time, he was a 13-year-old paperboy out delivering the news of his hero's passing in the freezing cold streets of New Rochelle. Uh, and like many rock fans, the loss felt like a personal one, like the death of a friend. As he told the UK TV show Songbook, quote, Buddy Holly's death to me was a personal tragedy. I went to school and mentioned it, and they said, so what? So I carried this yearning and longing, if you will, this weird sadness. And, you know, we just mentioned that line, 10 years. But Don's father died in 1961, 10 years before American Pie comes out, which is what has led people to speculate that for the 10 years we've been on our own line had that personal connection to him. Uh, we will get to McLean's uh, historical evasiveness about pinning down an exact uh, meaning to this song, although he has repeatedly said that it is a biographical song. He's made reference to his older sister who struggled with substance abuse issues during his childhood and uh, was, as you might imagine, a source of a lot of strife in the family household. He talked about this to The Guardian in 2020, saying, That's why I'm a blue guy, I guess. All my stuff is about loss and a certain kind of psychic pain. I've never really been happy. 
Uh, when asked point blank whether or not that verse is about his father, you've hit the nail on the head, he says, an unambiguous idiom, if ever there was one. I mean, that's exactly right. That's why I don't like talking about the lyrics, because I wanted to capture and say something that was almost unspeakable. It's indescribable. So it's not just about the death of Buddy Holly, but about the death of the good old days and the innocence and optimism that come with childhood. So all of these feelings, all these memories are rattling around Don's head and they become the intro of the song. More or less fully formed, he sings them into a tape recorder. Uh, the melody and the words come together once and he wrote it down after the fact. Kicked around the intro for a few months before figuring out what he wanted to do with it. Later saying, I could have gone 100 different ways with this. I could have made it a slow song. I didn't want any more slow songs. I wanted a rock and roll song. He wanted a song that evoked the intersection of politics and music and how one influences the other. And that's what led to the six verses of this. And there's a persistent rumor that he wrote these verses at a bar in Saratoga Springs called The Tin and Lint and then got so drunk that he left them behind. And American Pie wouldn't exist as we know it today, at least, had a kindly student not scooped up these missing notes and returned them to Don the next day. That's the myth. If I had a time machine, my first two stops, Baby Hitler, Strangle Baby Hitler, stop this student from giving Don McLean his notes. <laughs> Well, Don McQueen has denied two. this story, though, so you might be wasting your trip. Uh, he said in an interview with NPR, American Pie is a little bit like the Mayflower. Everybody's been on it or their parents were on it or something. People knew me that I didn't know, and people know things about me that, you know, they imagine, and it's just the way things are. But what makes me think this is funny is that I've kind of been knocking these stories down for years, and yet it persists. So it makes you wonder, how can you believe history? And McLean says that he actually wrote the lyrics to the verses of American Pie while walking into a drugstore in the small town of Cold Spring in upstate New York. And he later said, I came up the chorus walking into the damn store. I said, I've got to write this down. I ran home. It was several miles away. And I bring this up only because I visit Cold Spring a lot and I was recently house sitting for a friend up there and I unknowingly went to this exact pharmacy which he describes being next to a wine store, which is also still there. And hmm. I didn't have a car when I visited, and so I also had to run home on foot. So just a few weeks ago, I inadvertently took the same route that Don McLean took while writing the verse and choruses to American Pie. And I feel fantastic about that. I feel, I feel a kinship. Um, he later said that he finished writing the song in Philadelphia, which feels appropriate given the whole Americana thing, and premiered it for the first time at Temple University when he was opening for Laura Nairo on March 14th, 1971. And during this initial performance, there quite possibly was an additional verse, a long lost verse in American Pie. Now, for all of its catchy sing-along jauntiness, there's really very little cheer in American Pie. It's devoid of hope. McLean did come up with a more upbeat verse where the music gets reborn at the end of the song, but ultimately he ditched it. He said, things weren't going that way. I didn't see America improving intellectually or politically. It was steadily going downhill, and so was the music. So what's that great, I think it was Orson Welles or um, Hitchcock, I forget which, you know, you can make any comedy a tragedy or any tragedy a comedy, depending on where you end the movie. Mm -hmm. It's like that way with this song, yeah. It's probably for the best that he didn't add another verse to the six verses that had already made the final cut, because it is famously a very long song. <laughs> and when he played it for producer Ed Freeman for the first time, he sang an abridged version, just the first verse and chorus. 
because blasting your producer with an eight and a half minute song right out of the gate is sort of a, it's a tremendous power move. Let's put it that way. And Ed Freeman, this producer, is an interesting guy. He produced both the song and the American Pie album. And he grew up in Boston where he learned to play the Renaissance lute. <laughs> and he was paired with Don McLean at the recommendation of folk singer Tom Rush. And in addition to Don McLean, this guy Ed Freeman worked with Carly Simon, Greg Allman, and Tim Harden before chucking it all to become a photographer who's since become renowned for his nudes. And he shot a cover for Playboy magazine in 2019. So yes, <laughs> the producer of American Pie has also produced a cover for Playboy. Good for him. American Pie was recorded on the 26th of May, 1971, inside Studio A at New York's record plant. And initially, Don McLean wanted to record American Pie with just an acoustic guitar, similar to the albums that Freeman had produced for the folk singer Tom Rush. Which, I mean, can you imagine if this was just like a nine-minute acoustic guitar, Phil Oak-style rant? It's a good thing that Freeman persuaded him to use a rhythm section. And speaking to Classic Rock Magazine a few years back, Ed Freeman said that convincing Don to use a full band was, quote, the most crucial thing I did for that whole record. Don had not really had any experience of playing with other people, and he was very leery about it. So instead of getting in a bunch of seasoned studio musicians who could knock out the take in five minutes, I deliberately got musicians who were good, but weren't slick, burned-out superstar players. So <laughs> not yet they approach- were. <laughs> Right. So they'd be able to approach Don on the same level, he said. Basically, he wanted good live players who were just as green in the studio as Don was. And this is a really interesting sentiment to me because these guys seem like pretty heavy hitters from where I sit. There's pianist Paul Griffin, who played on Bob Dylan's Bring It All Back Home, Highway 61 Revisited, Blonde on Blonde, and Blood on the Tracks. And he also played with, among many other people, Steely Dan on Asia. And that's him playing keyboards on Peg. One of the best songs ever written. And then Rob Stoner, who was Dylan's bassist for Rolling Thunder. He takes a truly unnecessary bass solo on Isis. (laughs) Um and uh, that's all that guy has done. And he still plays that song at like his bar gigs and still takes that bass solo. <laughs> and then there's my favorite session player on this track is Dave Spinoza, who's familiar to me mostly for playing on my favorite solo Paul McCartney album, 1971's Ram. And he went on to work with John Lennon for his album Mind Games a few years later during the height of the post-split Beatles acrimony. And Spinoza discovered that John didn't know that he'd previously worked with Paul, and he really tried to hide it from him because he was afraid he'd be fired if John found out that, you know, he'd already been tainted by Paul or whatever, given all their recent feuding in the media. And I guess when John did learn of it, his only comment was that Paul, quote, knows how to pick good people. Very generous yeah. there. Spinoza also appeared on Ringo Starr's 1977 album, Ringo the Fourth, earning him the distinction of having recorded with three of the four Beatles. That Man, is good heart. for him. Yeah. Uh, so Don rehearsed with this band for two weeks before recording it in order to nail all the dynamic changes. I mean, you know, it's an eight and a half minute song, so a lot of changes there. And they nailed it pretty quickly. Apparently the final backing track that you hear is almost a single complete take except for a small edit of the piano part on the intro. So the instrumental backing track, pretty simple. The vocals, not so much. Producer Ed Freeman says that they were stitched together from 24 separate takes. 
and that's when they were doing this with uh, razor blade and scotch tape. Jesus and, Christ. And Freeman said his nickname back then was Slash for that very reason. He was just so known <laughs> for making Sick. really, yeah, <laughs> exactly, for being extremely precise with all of his edits. And it got to the same point that he says that there's one three-syllable word on the final track where each syllable is from a different take. And That's I'm nuts. not going to try to find out where that is. He declined to name it. But uh, but why was this required, you may ask? Because as producer Ed Freeman explained in Yahoo in as diplomatic a way as possible, Don is an excellent, very, very talented singer, but someone apparently made fun of him because he apparently sang things with the exact same vocal inflections every time. So he decided to be more improvisational when they were recording American Pie, and this is Ed Freeman talking, my estimation was that his improvisations just didn't work and were muddling up the song. And when I kept asking him to sing it in a certain way, he wouldn't do it. He wanted to play with it every time, inserting slides and other things to it that in my mind didn't fit. So we ended up recording him twice. 24 times and took different parts from different takes until I got every word the way I wanted it without all the play. And I don't think Don appreciated that much. <laughs> In Don's case, I think he was happy with the finished vocal, but he was not happy with someone else having that much influence. And as you can imagine, with all these redos, things got a little testy in the studio. Ed Freeman said, We had quite a tempestuous relationship. I wasn't an easy person to work with. Don wasn't an easy person to work with. So working with the two of us together must have been like watching two wasps go at each other. I think he means <laughs> the bug and not New England white people. <laughs> yeah, they would have just been sitting on opposite ends of the roots. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, he wet. also said that Don McLean badly needed an editor because he couldn't bring the best out in himself and edit what needed to be edited. Considering the finished song is almost nine minutes, um, yeah, maybe, maybe could have used some kind of editor, but, uh, but then again, so could we. Um, <laughs> but Don must have liked something considering he booked Ed Freeman to produce his next two albums. So I guess they kissed and made up. I like this Ed Freeman guy. Yeah. Yeah. The real hero of the story. So, speaking of the vocals, the non-razor-bladed together vocals, if you're listening closely to the background vocals on the song, you can hear some famous folks, apparently. Uncredited singers on the final background chorus are James Taylor, Carly Simon, James Taylor's brother Livingston Taylor, which, sure. Do you have any Livingston oh, Taylor anecdotes? Oh, yeah. Liv, Liv Taylor, like... I mean, not Liv Taylor. Did, not sorry, not Liv Tyler. No, Liv Tyler. <laughs> no, he went by. No, was, he had a he had a big album in the early seventies. I think it was just called Liv. No, he was. I mean, definitely not up there with James Taylor, but he had some good stuff in the early seventies. Nepotism. Yeah, worth checking out. Uh, and Kate Taylor too. Their sister is also a very talented singer. Man, if you were just a white guy strumming a guitar in the seventies, you could just bring your whole family along with you. I mean, that's why we have seventy six <laughs> Wainwrights kicking around. Um, and Pete Seeger. Oh, Pete Seeger's on there too. Yeah, yeah. What a group, man! It was quite a star-studded cast, and one that I really should have photographed. Freeman said, um, but they neglected to credit these people, probably because of contract stuff, right? Like you, these all these were they were all contracted to different probably, record labels. Yeah, that's my guess. That's why Springsteen is a, my favorite collaboration of all time. Not that's a lie. My favorite collaboration for the purpose of this podcast at this exact moment. Springsteen's uncredited spoken word section in Street Hassle by Lou Reed. Can you imagine two people less predisposed <laughs> to collaboration? I love that. And he wasn't credited because I think he was fighting with Hammond at the time. But yes, yeah, so they were billed simply as the West 44th Street Rhythm and Noise Choir. It's a good name. 
Yeah, it is. Uh, I got to give Don some credit. He wanted to have the mixing of the song mirror the transition from the 1950s to the 60s. He wanted the song to begin mono, transition from mono to stereo as the song progressed, but the guy who engineered the session, Tom Fry, has discredited that. Uh, He told Performing Musician Magazine that uh, it was Freeman's idea. Uh, he said he originally wanted American Pie to start in mono and then go to stereo, but that wasn't really doable with the board we had, so I talked him out of it. Yeah. Uh, I don't I don't buy that. That's a mixing thing. That's not... Well, whatever. Maybe it just was more trouble than it was worth for this high concept That's, thing. I think, that was probably already <laughs> seemingly yeah. spiraling out of, you know, 24 different takes stitched together. They probably yeah. just wanted to get it out the tour. Yeah. Speaking of that length, you know, this is one of the many technical problems posed by American Pie. It's 1971, an era when many radio stations, particularly AM stations, were demanding radio edits uh, around three and a half to four minutes. American Pie is a tidy eight minutes and 42 seconds. And you can't really um, edit much of it out. Kind of doesn't really work. I guess you can Yeah, edit, it's but... all so essential. <laughs> Sorry. Um, as Ed Freeman says, there was no way to physically put an eight-minute song on one side of a 45, which would have been the, the single release for it. So we split it, part one and part two. Even so, I spent weeks in the mastering lab looking at every groove under a microscope to see if we were actually getting the song on there so the needle wouldn't skip. And we still had 100,000 returns on 45s because the needle did skip. Wow. Oh my God, it was a... F- nightmare hundred thousand imagine being ed freeman and like not only is the creation of this song a nightmare but the mixing of it the mastering of it you get it out the door a sense of peace returns to your life for the first time in months and then you hear that it hasn't been mastered correctly and people are sending the 45 back oh man the only person more haunted by this song than i am American Pie was released in October of 1971, spent four weeks at number one on the Billboard Hot 100. Fittingly, it remained there on the 13th anniversary of the day the music died that February. If you're a numerologist, that might be interesting to you. It was also the longest song to top the charts, a record it held for 50 years until Taylor Swift released her re-recorded version of All Too Well in November 2021, which clocks in at 10 minutes and 13 seconds. It's interesting to me that Don's other major chart hit, which is his tribute to Vincent Van Gogh, Vincent, uh, is about the loss of another important cultural icon. So he loves eulogizing. At eulogizer, it was his most likely to eulogize in his high school yearbook. (laughs) Just loves writing about uh, incredibly beloved, widespread, massively popular figures who don't need to be eulogized. (laughs) Just taking shots at Don. Come at me, Don. I'll fight you in a new Rochelle Park. I'll fight you in a new Rochelle parking lot. I'll fly there on my own dime. <laughs> Watch him like whip my ass. Watch yeah, like eighty-year-old yeah. Don McLean like just throw hands, break my jaw. That would be my the most Heigl comeuppance. I shoot my mouth off, and a boomer musician with one hit to his name just like wrecks my. Shit. Um, thankfully it was snubbed at the Grammys, uh, where it lost both song of the year and record of the year to Roberta f***ing Flack. Thank, I, oh my God, that would have been my third stop on the time machine if this song had beat out Roberta Flack for record of the year and song of the year. First time ever I saw your face. Oh, that's a beautiful song. It's tremendous. And you have more bits about it. (laughs) 
Yeah, this is interesting to me because Roberta Flack won the same pair of awards, Song of the Year and Record of the Year, the following year at the Grammys for Killing Me Softly with his song, which was actually <laughs> written about Don McLean. In 1971, a singer named Laurie Lieberman saw Don McLean perform at the Troubadour Theater in Los Angeles, and she was so moved by the experience that she wrote a poem about it, which she relayed to lyricist Norman Gimbel, who wrote Killing Me Softly Around It, which became a gargantuan smash for Roberta Flack. And it was also famously covered by the Fugees in 1996. But that's not Don McLean's only tie to hip-hop legends. His work has influenced the likes of Drake, who sampled two of his songs, The Wrong Thing to Do and When a Good Thing Goes Bad, for his song Doing It Wrong. But according to the movie Tupac, The Resurrection, Tupac Shakur was heavily influenced by Don McLean. He's quoted as saying, my inspiration for writing music is like Don McLean did when he did American Pie or Vincent. Lorraine Hansberry with A Raisin in the Sun, like Shakespeare when he does his thing, like deep stories, raw human needs. And he also cited Vincent as his favorite song, telling the LA Times, the lyric on that song is so touching. That's how I want to make my songs feel. And reportedly, his girlfriend played Vincent to Tupac on his deathbed, which makes it the last song that he ever heard. The last song that Tupac Shakur ever heard was Don McLean's Vincent. Isn't that nuts? How do you feel about that? Anyway. Oh, this will this will make you even happier. Anyway, back to American Pie. The track inspired a host of covers over the years, all of them fairly ill-advised. But none were as terrible as the earliest cover by the Brady Bunch. Television's favorite blended family recorded the song in 1972, just a year after the original, for their album, Meet the Brady Bunch. And they also did uber poppy versions of You and Me and a Dog Named Boo, Bad Fingers Day After Day, and Baby I'ma Want You by Bread. But of particular note is their truncated version of American Pie. It's only three and a half minutes, which sort of cuts the guts out of the song, but I didn't really want to listen to any more of the Brady Bunch. <laughs> anyway, it's been frequently included on lists of the worst cover songs of all time. And as actor Barry Williams, who played Greg Brady, wrote in his memoir, Growing Up Brady, worst of all, though, was our extraordinary, awful rendition of American Pie. Ouch. So at least he's aware of it. Uh, on the flip side, I'll always have a soft spot for Weird Al's 1999 Star Wars inspired song, The Saga Begins. Was that a big one for you? Yeah. Do you know why this song rules? Sure, no. So, I mean, obvious. Other than all the obvious things, no. uh, you, Weird Al wrote it from pre-release internet spoilers. Lucasfilm, tur- Lucasfilm turned him down. He wanted an advanced screening of it, and he, on his own dime, subsequently went to a pre-screening where the proceeds were going to charity. And the spoilers were so accurate that he had read that he didn't really have to change much in the song. And uh, it is the second Weird Al song about. Star Wars, which is 1980s Yoda, which is a parody of Lola by the Kings. Oh, oh that's yeah. good. Wow. Mm-hmm. 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 I guess Tom McLean is also a big fan of The Saga Begins, and he's admitted to nearly singing Weird Al's lyrics in concert because his children played the song so often, which good. I love. Yeah. The only cover version of American Pie to actually chart is the one done by Heigl's favorite, Madonna. who recorded it for her 2000 movie, The Next Best Thing, with Rupert Everett. Um, I guess in the movie, Madonna and Rupert Everett sing it at a funeral? I I haven't caught this one in a while or ever, but that's interesting. (laughs) Uh, 
the studio version was included on the soundtrack and released as a single, which topped the UK charts and peaked at 29 in the US. And this version was voted the worst ever cover in a poll by BBC Six Music in 2007. But one fan of Madonna's cover is McLean himself, who felt moved to release a statement about her version. Uh, he's been defending it for years, so maybe he needed to release this just to like, fend off the haters. Madonna is a colossus in the music industry, and she is going to be considered an important historical figure as well. She is a fine singer, a fine songwriter and record producer, and she has the power to guarantee success with any song she chooses to record. It's a gift for her to have recorded American Pie. I've heard her version. I think it's sensual and mystical. Sensual and mystical. I also feel that she's chosen autobiographical verses that reflect her career and personal history. I hope it will cause people to ask what's happening to music in America. I have received many gifts from God, but this is the first time I've ever received a gift from a goddess. Wow. Quite a statement there. I'm guessing he mostly appreciated the financial implications of Madonna's cover because, as we'll discuss later, this guy really enjoys making money. Yeah, Don McLean <laughs> loves money. His oft-repeated quote about this song, what does American Pie mean? Is It means I never have to work again. Um, medium funny. Yeah, it, yeah, it, you know, once again. Wow, well, our generation doesn't get pensions or health care, but I'm glad this guy can make six figures from a 50-year-old song. Something like $300,000 a year. According to an interview in MarketWatch, he claims to have made $150 million in his life thanks to wise investments and his degree in finance from Iona College. But the interpretations of this song came fast and furious. In January of 1972, just a few months after the release, a Chicago DJ published his interpretation of the lyrics, and this, the floodgates were opened. There are entire websites dedicated to decoding the meaning of all nearly 900 words of this. And one person who has declined to weigh in, at least in a meaningful way, is Don himself. In 1978, he did admit that the lyrics were an autobiographical take of his own life from the mid-50s to the mid-60s, but that's, that's kind of it. In 1993, he published an open letter to fans as part of the syndicated Straight Dope column in the Chicago Reader. Did he have a syndicated column in the Chicago Reader? Was he answering questions? No, I've never heard of Straight Dope. Oh, they publish like books and stuff. It's almost like a Snopes, like they all you know, fact-checking kind of uh, oh. column. That's pretty cool. No, we didn't get alt-weeklies in new, new alt-weeklies? <laughs> we didn't get anything. <laughs> we got this. Uncle John's bathroom reader. <laughs> yes, like seven. All the news I need yeah, like, from Uncle John's bathroom reader. There are like seven different copies of those scattered around my house. Um, <laughs> this letter read in part, As you can imagine, I've been asked many times to discuss and explain my song American Pie. I have never discussed the lyrics, but have admitted to the Buddy Holly reference in the opening stanzas. I dedicated the album American Pie to Buddy Holly as well in order to connect the entire statement to Holly in hopes of bringing about an interest in him, which subsequently did occur. You will find many, quote, interpretations of my lyrics, but none of them by me. Isn't this fun? Sorry to leave you all on your own like this, but long ago I realized songwriters should make their statements and move on. Maintaining a dignified silence? It sounds like the Zodiac's letters or something. Isn't this fun? <laughs> Sorry to leave you on your own like this, but I realized long ago... I must ago be going song... now. <laughs> yeah. What a f***ing chud. 
So I, <laughs> I make my statements and move on. I'll just continue dining out on this for the entirety of my natural life. Oh, boy. Um, yeah, I mean... I'll read this line because there's no way you can read this. Yeah. For him, the song's become an impressionistic, dreamlike fantasia of the youth culture explosion in the 60s, and he preferred to keep it poetry rather than make it literal and remove the power of the words through the imaginative interpretation of the individuals. It is worth noting that he was not alone in this particular generation of songwriters for uh, not really enjoying people playing these armchair interpretations. The Doors uh, used to read these and laugh (laughs) to each other, which, you know, Jim Morrison was drunk for 95% of his life, so I buy that. The Beatles especially. Yeah, Glass Onion is famously, John Lennon was amused by people being handed his lyrics in classes, right? Like in like writing classes in school. And so there's all these different troll lines in there. Like uh, uh, that's the one that has the walrus was Paul, right? Told you about, yeah, Yeah. told you about Strawberry Fields. Yeah. Fool in the Hill, he's living there still. Yep. Uh, McLean says, he did say, if I told people what I meant, they'd just say, no, you didn't. All right. Fair. Yeah. Uh, he has, <laughs> fittingly for someone who said I should make my statement and move on, he has continued to talk about the song recently, most notably when the manuscript for American Pie was auctioned off in 2015 by Christie's. He said, basically in American Pie, things are heading in the wrong direction. It is becoming less idyllic. I don't know whether you consider that wrong or right, but it is a morality song in a sense. Uh, he likened singing the line "Singing Bye Bye Miss American Pie" to an apocryphal, the apocryphal story of Nero playing the fiddle while Rome burned. But much like Carly Simon's "You're So Vain" and Alanis's "You Ought to Know," it will be one of those songs where the true on the record meaning is forever obscured by the mists of time. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more too much information after these messages. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. 
Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby Award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. So considering Don McLean's not going to say, let's have a little fun and delve into the lyrics of American Pie, shall we? Yes, let's have... Shall we? Let's, Answer me. Let's, <laughs> let's, yes, Jordan, let us have fun. Yeah, let's have fun. <laughs> Isn't this a lot of fun? What's the line from... Uh, um, man, we just watched King of Comedy a few months ago. <laughs> We're going to have good, clean fun. That's Well, he's, he's duct taped to the chair. Um... <laughs> That's okay, what Jordan, like that's, that's what, what you're doing to me right, right now. now. Yeah. As I go through all six <laughs> verses of American Pie. All right, um, strap looked, in, baby. <laughs> yes, here we go. I've looked at quite a few annotated versions of this song, but the best one that I found is on a music site called Musicoholics, which, despite its difficult to pronounce and slightly problematic name, is kind of one of the best music trivia sites I've found lately. I stumbled across it recently when I was researching something for one of the episodes we were doing. And it's a cool site. Some really great deep dives. And this piece by Alva Yaffe on the meaning of American Pie is really stellar. So I'm taking a lot of the interpretations I'm talking about from that piece. Go check it out. It's really good. Verse one. We all know the opening verse a long, long time ago with a young Don McLean as a paper boy shivering on the doorstep of a neighbor's house as he delivers the news of his hero buddy Holly's death. The bye-bye Miss American Pie chorus we've touched on uh, is believed to be about the loss of American innocence, this notion of going in the wrong direction. But the levy might have a more personal meaning to Don. Uh, who, again, it should be noted, has always maintained that this is a very autobiographical song. According to some reports I've seen, the levee was a bar that he and his friends would hang out in in New Rochelle, and sometimes the levee would close, or the levee would be dry, and McLean and his friends would drive across the Hudson River to drink in the town of Rye, New York. Huh. Whiskey and rye, whiskey in rye. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, again. Yeah. Do you ever uh, hear about um, that bar in Williamsburg, noting, the levee, that was formerly one of the biggest Coke bars? Wasn't it? it used to be called Cokies, right? Yeah. Yeah, oh, famous yeah. Uh, 2000s indie rock hotspot. <laughs> yeah, total meet me in the bathroom like yep. spot. Yeah. Uh, also worth noting that Chevy had a famous jingle in the 50s sung by Dinah Shore called See the USA in Your Chevrolet, which featured the lyrics, Drive your Chevrolet through the USA, America's the greatest land of all, on a highway 
or a road along the levee, life is completer in a Chevy. So make a date today to see the USA and see it in your Chevrolet. So even the choice of car in American Pie is pretty loaded, the significance, or it just rhymed. Um, Second verse, we start in the good old days. Did you write the book of love? Is a reference to not only young teenage love, but also the old doo-wop song Book of Love by the Monotones. And Don touches on faith with, do you have faith in God above if the Bible tells you so? Although the Bible tells me so was also a hit song by Don Cornell in 1955. So it could be another song reference. Then Don makes the connection between faith and music with the next line. Do you believe in rock and roll? Can music save your mortal soul? And this sounds like a bit of teenage hyperbole, but it's something that Don apparently believes in quite wholeheartedly. He said in a 1971 interview with Phonograph Magazine, music is a very sacred thing. To sell it, faint it, or abuse it isn't just commercial, it's sacrilege. Music touches the same universality that made Christ a saint to many people, and that's very important. Uh, And it's really unclear whether the line, can music save your mortal soul, is meant to be sincere or sarcastic, because it could also be viewed as people moving away from God and looking to secular heroes like rock stars. Bigger than Jesus. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There you go. Yeah. I just want to point out one of my favorite rock and roll couplets of all times by Mike Cooley from uh, Drive-By Truckers, who, uh, 20 years younger than Don McLean, but really one of the greatest opening lines in, uh, to my mind, uh, rock history, which is in the song Marry Me uh, by Drive-By Truckers. The opening line to that song is, well, my daddy didn't pull out, but he never apologized. Rock and roll means well, but it can't help telling young boys lies. <laughs> ah, wow. Rock and roll mythology. I will never stop believing in it, even as much as I detest so much of it. So much of it. Oh, sorry, that's just what it made me think of. Well, Don McLean's take on romance, at least back in the good time era of the 50s, is a lot more quaint because he sings about the intimate romantic courtship 50s style, slow dancing in the gym at a sock hop, picking up your date for prom with a pink carnation in your boutonniere, which is probably a reference to Marty Robbins, a white sport coat with a pink carnation, later parodied by friend of the program Jimmy Buffett in his album title, White Sport Coat with a Pink Crustacean. (laughs) That's that's Uh, funny. I will say, if anything, this f***ing Batan death march of a podcast is making me appreciate Jimmy Buffett more. So the greatest trick the devil and Jordan ever pulled was making (laughs) Buffett look great by comparison. I love Marty (laughs) Robbins, man. Oh, yeah. Great. Do you know that I I didn't realize this, and this makes so much sense from a practical standpoint. Do you know that sock hops were a thing because they made kids take off their shoes so they wouldn't scuff up the polished hardwood floor in school gymnasiums? I actually did, because... I did. Yeah, oh. I did because we did Greece and my. Uh, like, I did Greece too. Yeah. Wait, w- you were in Greece? Yeah, I mean, I was in Where like the you? chorus. I was in the chorus of like everything, and uh, until until I played now. King, king Lear. <laughs> <laughs> you were King Lear. How old were you? Uh, uh, 16, 17, 16 or seventeen. Oh my god! I wish. I hope somebody recorded that. I would love to. They see didn't, that. and if they did, I would have destroyed it. It's one of my most mortifying high school memories. <laughs> my God! Yeah. Well, let's keep rolling. My suffering is legendary, to quote Hellraiser. Uh, (laughs) Verse three, Jordan, go ahead. Yes, verse three opens with one of the most debated verses of the song. For 10 years, we've been on our own and moss grows fat on a rolling stone, but that's not how it used to be. 
And the most obvious interpretation is that it refers to the Rolling Stones themselves. But interestingly, the line, a Rolling Stone gathers no moss, is a line from a Buddy Holly song early in the morning. So this line might be tying a decade worth of rock tragedies together. The 10 years, if you will, between Buddy Holly's plane crash in 1959 and the Rolling Stones concert at Altamont in 1969, where Meredith Hunter was knifed to death by a member of the Hells Angels. But then, of course, there's also the Bob. Dylan song like a Rolling Stone. So multiple potential meanings there. Uh, but we mentioned Bob Dylan. This, of course, leads us into the jester section. When the jester sang for the king and queen in a coat he borrowed from James Dean and a voice that came from you and me. And while the king was looking down, the jester stole his thorny crown. The jester, of course, is widely believed to be Bob Dylan, and the coat he borrowed from James Dean is believed to be the outfit he wore on the cover of his Freewheeling album, where he's walking down uh, Jones Street. Oh, Jones. It's a cold day, and he's got a coat buttoned up. Um, That's a James Dean jacket? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think he's looking at the Rebel Without a Cause, like, red windbreaker kind of thing. I don't know. It's it's iffy. Yeah, it's iffy. Um, That's yeah, the theory, I'm not going to give him that one. Yeah. Uh, the voice that came from you and me line is thought to be a reference to Dylan's untrained singing style and also his status as the spokesperson for his generation, famously. Um the king and queen that the jester sang for, this gets a little thorny. There are some who believe that this is a reference to JFK and Jackie Kennedy playing off the whole Camelot myth of the Kennedy White House. And there are also some who take a literal approach, believing that the king and queen are actually Martin Luther King and Queen Elizabeth II, who I guess Bob Dylan did sing for on separate occasions, um, which is interesting. Taken alone, the line, while the king was looking down, the jester stole his thorny crown, seems to reference Bob Dylan becoming the dominant force among young music fans, stealing the mantle from the king of rock, Elvis Presley, who was either serving in the army or serving in Hollywood. Either way, he was kind of out of commission. The thorny crown in question is thought to be the price of fame. Uh, I guess Tom McLean was specifically asked about this interpretation in a piece in The Guardian, and he got a little testy. He said, as I've told people, you're going to call Elvis the king? The king in my song is a thorny crown, and only Jesus had a thorny crown. I think I was very clear about that. <laughs> There's a lot of reasons why I don't turn this into a board game, because it's not. American Pie is an impressionistic piece. So, okay, he's no help there. There are others who go back to the Kennedy interpretation and that the jester was Lee Harvey Oswald stealing the thorny crown from Kennedy by assassinating him. Uh, this interpretation is bolstered by the next line of the song, no verdict was returned, the courtroom was adjourned, meaning that the nation got a never-concrete answer or closure regarding the assassination of JFK. And Don McLean's talked a great deal about the impact that both the assassination and the fallout surrounding the controversies and conspiracy theories had on his generation. And he said, the institutions began failing in the 60s because people didn't believe in them anymore. My little theory is that we were brought up on rock and roll and God and country and Western movies and morality plays about right and wrong. Everyone knew Hopalong Cassidy and Roy Rogers and their code of conduct. After Kennedy was killed, I read Mark Lane's Rush to Judgment, which was a, a very famous book in the mid-60s disputing the Warren Commission findings that Lee Harvey Oswald act alone in killing JFK. And Don McLean said, All of us were in college realizing that the government was withholding information about the assassination and still is. Um, 
I'd like to pause right here. You know how there's this theory that the Zodiac killer was never caught <laughs> because there was actually two people working as a conspiracy, and that's why all the evidence never added up to conviction? I almost wonder if that's the case with these lyrics. Like, a lyric will have context in relation to the line before it, and then that context will change when you hear the line after it. So perhaps there are multiple theories that are correct about the same line. It's like Schrodinger's interpretation. By merely speaking about it, you change the context of it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, these metaphorical figures and archetypes have multiple meanings simultaneously. That could be what's happening with this song. I think if anything has ever summed up the dichotomy of your personality, it is waxing rhapsodic about the interpretations of American Pie and somehow connecting it to the Zodiac. And JFK. And JFK, yeah, yeah. And now we're going into my beloved Beatles. Here we go. Great. We got, this is really, I mean, no wonder I wanted to do this episode so badly. Uh, While Lennon read a book on Marx, the quartet practiced in the park. And this could be a fantastic bit of wordplay referencing John Lennon reading up on communism and singing about revolution as he did in 1968. Although in the single version of revolution, he doesn't know if he's for or against Chairman Mao. He sings Count Me Out. In, in the single version. But it could also be about the rise of the Soviet bloc in Eastern Europe. And the quartet practicing in the park could be a reference to the Beatles playing huge stadiums like Shea Stadium or Candlestick Park. The world may never know. Verse 4. In verse 4, we find the chaos of the 60s in full force. Helter Skelter in a summer swelter, obviously a reference to the Manson murders and possibly the riots in the summer of 68, culminating in the clash between protesters and cops in Chicago at the Democratic National Convention that August. The birds flew off to a fallout shelter eight miles high and fallen fast, obviously a reference to the bird song, Eight Miles High. Perhaps a reference to the center of the music world shifting from L.A., where the birds are from, to San Francisco in 66-67. With the jester on the sidelines in a cast, the next line, more mounting evidence that the jester is indeed Bob Dylan, because 1966 and 1967 marked the period of his semi-mythical motorcycle accident and lengthy period of recuperation, during which he withdrew from the music industry entirely. The halftime air was sweet perfume while the sergeants played a marching tune. My interpretation of that is that it's another reference to the Beatles who released Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band on June 1st, 1967, kicking off the also semi-mythical Summer of Love. Uh, They became the sergeants who led the march of the counterculture, thus leaving Dylan, a.k.a. the jester, behind on the sidelines in a cast. But at the peak of the sweetly perfumed summer, there was civil unrest. We all got up to dance, but we never got the chance, he sings. He looked on as players try to take the field, but the marching band refused to yield. This line alone is hotly debated. Many say that the marching band could have been police blocking civil rights protesters. Others say it's the Beatles preaching nonviolence with their 1967 hit, All You Need Is Love. Verse 5. Another chorus. And then we're into verse five. Oh, and there we were all in one place, a generation lost in space with no time left to start again. This seems to be the summer of 69 when the youth generation gathered at Woodstock just weeks after Neil Armstrong became the very first human to walk on the moon. Flash forward a few months to the Rolling Stones concert at Altamont in December of 69 when drug use led to violence at the hands of the Hells Angels while the Stones performed, opening with their new single, Jumpin' Jack Flash. And as Dawn sings, so come on, Jack, be nimble, Jack, be quick, 
Jack Flash sat on a candlestick because fire is the devil's only friend. And as I watched him on the stage, my hands were clenched in fists of rage. No angel born in hell could break that Satan's spell. Angel born in hell seems to me like a reference to the hell's angels, which would make Satan Mick Jagger, I guess. Um, Satan's spell. Hell's angels couldn't break it. I don't know. Um, All the shitty rhymes in this song make me want to hear the Beastie Boys cover this, just so they can (laughs) do that classic, like, 80s rap thing of being like, oh, and as I watched him on, then they all yell, stage! My hands were clenched in fists of rage! No angel born in hell could break that Satan spell! That was was terrible. (laughs) I love that. Oh my god. Uh, Oh... Some uh, interpret Don McLean as holding Mick Jagger and the rest of the Stones responsible for the death at Altamont, as anyone who's seen the Maisel's documentary, Gimme Shelter, could probably attest. And he continues with the line, and as the flames climbed high into the night to light the sacrificial rite, I saw Satan laughing with delight the day the music died. Tremendous uh, three-line stretch of end rhymes there. Uh, that's the only line in this, actually. Like It sounds like Black Sabbath. I do... Oh, yeah want to personally thank Don for not re-releasing this song after Woodstock 99, which seems oh like a missed opportunity for him to make money and also get on his f***ing high horse about this. Woodstock 99, of course, famously being a orgy of destruction, arson, and rape, uh, during which the Red Hot Chili Peppers covered Jimi Hendrix's Fire and Limp Bizkit covered their own song, Break Stuff, leading people to set things on fire and break stuff. Hmm. All right. In a way, we could have seen that coming. <laughs> yeah, just reading the set list is an instruction manual, really. Pro- prophetic. No. Oh, boy. And then, finally, we slow it down for the final verse. I met a girl who sang the blues and asked her for some happy news, but she just smiled and turned away. A line, I never really made this connection, a line believed to be about Janis Joplin and her death in October of 1970. And Don heads down to the sacred store, the record store, where he heard the music years before. But a man there said the music wouldn't play. And this could be a metaphor or it could be a very literal meaning. Record stores used to have listening booths for kids to sample songs before they bought them, which was basically how poor kids used to hear music on the cheap. It's how the Beatles used to hang out at record stores and crib the lyrics to the songs that they wanted to play on their set because they couldn't afford to buy them. So it was kind of a crucial uh, place for uh, low-resource kids to experience music. Uh, but by the 70s, most stores had abandoned this practice. So that could be, it's kind of a stretch, but could be what that line means. And in the streets, the children screamed, the lovers cried, and the poets dreamed, but not a word was spoken. The church bells all were broken. The 60s dream had died. There's rioting in the streets. We live in a godless world. And then he references the Holy Trinity, the three men he admires most, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, catching the last train for the coast. One of the most mysterious lines in the song, there are some who believe that this is a reference to the three um, most uh, generationally scarring assassinations of the era, I guess you could say, John F. Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, and Martin Luther King. There are others who think that this is a reference to the three men killed in the plane crash, Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper. And... It's also an interesting bookend to the line, do you have faith in God above because the Bible tells you so from 
earlier in the song. In 1966, there was a famous cover on Time magazine that read, Is God Dead? And that kind of seemed to be the prevailing notion at the time and now. And in interviews that Don's given, it sounds like he was really mourning the loss of people's connection with God. And then we close with a final chorus, backed with the help of James Taylor, Carly Simon, Livingston Taylor, and Pete Seeger. And we are out. So, what does this all mean? Heigl, what does this all mean? Well, I think the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost is pretty self-explanatory. Buddy Holly is, of course, the father. Richie Valens, at, at the age of 17, is the son, which would make the Big Bopper the Holy Ghost, um, which I believe in, personally, um, myself. Can you imagine being haunted by the Big Bopper? <laughs> Hello. <laughs> You're just like in your room late at night. Yeah. <laughs> From, you're a, trying you to look sleep. up in the corner. He's like spread yeah. there like the exorcist. Going, guy Hello. in a checkered <laughs> sport coat. <laughs> holding an old 50s rotary style phone. Doing his shtick <laughs> in the afterlife. Um, Rosemary's Baby. It's also 68 had come out. And um, there's that line. God is dead. God is dead. Hmm. Satan, li- Satan, uh, Satan lives. This is year one. The year is one. <gasps> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so maybe Don McLean saw Rosemary's Baby. Uh, All right, so we mentioned earlier that uh, Don McLean, as he's wont to do, took credit for this song uh, creating a resurgence in the interest around Buddy Holly, and I regret to inform you he was correct about that. Uh, The song did go a long way in revitalizing interest in Holly and directly led to the uh, 1978 biopic The Buddy Holly Story, uh, starring Gary Busey, who probably mean that probably means go go Gary can thank Don for his career. Uh, McLean has said if you talk to Maria Elena, the widowed bride mentioned in the lyrics, she will tell you that Buddy got more publicity after I wrote my song than he'd ever got in his life. I know it sounds self-serving, but if you check it out, you will find that out, and that started the whole thing going. Uh, the renewed popularity of Buddy meant that writer John Goldrosen has said he was finally able to get his Holly biography published, and that was the book that got adapted into the Buddy Holly story, starring Gary Busey. There's a very nice, uh, sweet full circle moment. McLean autographed the wall at the Surf Ballroom where Buddy played his last gig just hours before he died. Uh, though he was pleased to shine some light on his hero, McLean has been frustrated that many have reduced American Pie to just a story about Buddy Holly. He said, The fact that Buddy Holly seems to be the primary thing that people talk about when they talk about American Pie is kind of sad, but fine with me. (laughs) Because only the beginning is about Buddy Holly, and the rest of it goes on and talks about America and politics and the country and trying to catch some kind of a special feeling that I had about my country, especially in 1970 and 71, which was very turbulent. But, One person we have not heard from in relation to this song is Bob Dylan. That's right, folks. He did not appreciate the implication that he was the jester in the song, addressing it during a rare interview in 2017 in which he said, yeah, American Pie, what a song that is, which is such a tremendous (laughs) bit of shade. (laughs) He continued, a jester. Sure, the jester writes songs like Masters of War, A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, and It's Alright, Ma. Some gesture. I have to think he's talking about somebody else. Then Dylan adds, ask him. <laughs> Talk about, man, Dylan. Dylan Imagine being still... the interviewer on this. 
Dylan can still pull out the knives. That is a murderous quote. <laughs> Name dropping three iconic songs against one piece of <laughs> I love that. Uh, someone did subsequently ask Don because people keep doing that. As recently as 2020, McLean replied, I can't tell you, but he would make a damn good jester, wouldn't he? Didn't Steeler's Wheel, didn't they also call him the je- stuck in the Jokers to the Je- left of me? Oh, jester, joker. These people got to stop clowning on Dylan, man. Uh, he then went on to add that Dylan's son, Jacob, no stranger, of course, to the machinations of music industry nepotism, asked him the same question, and he didn't tell Jacob Dylan either. But yes, the lore around American Pie has only grown over the years, and in 2015, the working manuscript that Don McLean used to write the song sold at auction for $1.2 million. And considering the song is nearly nine minutes long, it should come as no surprise that this manuscript ran to 16 pages, many ripped out of a spiral notebook. And it contains lines that didn't make the final cut, including, And there I stood alone and afraid. I knelt to my knees and there I prayed. And I prepared to give all I had to give. If only he would make it live again. Uh, Don claimed that he would give away some of the secrets of the song when it was auctioned off. And I think in the uh, auction booklet, he confirmed the theories about Dylan and the Jester, Elvis and the King, and the climax of the song at Altamont. So basically, the more uh, obvious ones he confirmed. But this manuscript sold to an unnamed buyer for $1.2 million, which I believe made it the ninth highest selling either manuscript or lyric sheet of all time. Either way, a lot of money. And the hilarious part is that Don had more or less forgotten that he even had the manuscript until Rolling Stone editor Ben Fong Torres asked him about possibly giving this manuscript to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And Don was like, oh yeah, that. Oh, he said he wasn't even sure if he still had it. And then he went looking for it, dug it out, and instead of donating it to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, like Ben Fong Torres asked, he promptly put it up for auction. Which is hilarious. I hope that he cut Ben Fong Torres in, at least. Um, Don discussed the sale just before the auction. In Rolling Stone, I believe. I'm going to be 70 this year. I have two children and a wife, and none of them seem to have the mercantile instinct. I want to get the best deal I can for them. It's time. And he's spoken at length about wanting to sell all of his stuff before he dies, like song lyric sheets, guns, saddles, hunting knives, banjos, guitars, custom boots, his car. It's this funny mishmash of like this Buddhist sense of cleansing and also deep control freak sensibilities. I'm really fascinated by that. Oh, boy. Tell us more about Don McLean's lust for the Hobbit's gold. Yes, he's very good at making money. Again, he claimed a few years back to have amassed a fortune of $150 million. He majored in finance and minored in philosophy, which I think is such a fascinating insight into his psyche. He owns his song catalog and licenses American Pie out to ads, including one for Chevy in 2002, appropriately enough. And they also had another fantastic slogan, they don't write songs about Volvos, which is pretty good ad copy for Chevy. I like that. Don also took a page from the Jimmy Buffett Margaritaville playbook and trademarked titles and phrases from his biggest songs, including American Pie, Starry Starry Night, The Day the Music Died, and Bye Bye Miss American Pie. Do we have to pay him now that we've said these on the show? (laughs) Almost as certainly. Um, And he says as much on his website, which I think is a weird thing to brag about. 
unless it's just meant as a warning. This is the same website that claims that uh, his song Tapestry led to the creation of Greenpeace. So um, his website's full of lies, fun, fun facts. <laughs> um, lies. There are multiple songs written about Volvos, by the way. Really? Yes. Volvo Cowgirl 99 by Sheryl Crow, the B-side to one of her early singles. Huh. An old Volvo by Tom and Ellen DeMarest, recorded by a couple in Oregon. Uh, that made it on Car Talk. <laughs> Sorry, I just wanted to contradict Don McLean at every possible. But these trademarked phrases came in handy when Universal Studios made its American Pie film franchises in the late 90s. Don McLean reportedly collected an undisclosed sum for using his title because nothing sums up the death of the American dream better than a sexually frustrated teen pleasuring himself with a baked good. <laughs> yes, McLean is a canny businessman who follows in the footsteps of old-fashioned management figures like Elvis's manager, Colonel Tom Parker, and he's also unbothered by the sizable population, including my friend Alex Heigl, who find American Pie annoying. He said that he's considered printing up I hate American pie buttons because that's what the colonel did with Elvis. He wanted both sides. I hate Elvis and I love Elvis. I hate American pie. I love American pie. Not an original thought in his head. And there you have it. Nihilistic (laughs) capitalism is the illogical conclusion to the American dream. Bye bye. Miss American Pie. And well, (laughs) folks, I think it's time to say bye bye to this episode. (laughs) I will give the final word to producer Ed Freeman, who said that American Pie helped close the book on the tumultuous 60s. (laughs) He said, without this song, many of us would not have been able to achieve closure and move on. Don saw that and wrote the song that set us free. We should all be eternally grateful for that. You hear that, Heigl? We're free. Judy, you're free. <laughs> yeah. Any any final screams? Any final thoughts? <sighs> I oh my. That all I can say is you've outdone yourself. How so? I can't think of something else that would anger me this much. I watched the Racerhead for you. That's true. You did. That's true. You did. Which took less time than this and Margaritaville combined. <laughs> uh, you could have watched four Eraserheads in the amount of time that I have now dedicated to. Listening to your, what's the f-ing guy from Zodiac, the journalist Gray Smith? Yes, Gray Smith. To listen to your Gray Smithian investigations into some of the worst songs of all time. Um, no, I don't have anything more to say to this. Uh, you know, he could probably have me killed. Um, hmm. many times probably over, many this. times over. All right, well, hmm. I, I, you've broke, you've you've broken me. We'll do Bruce Lee in the next episode. And you'll Jordan, be happy again. Folks, Don't Jordan won. Jordan won. Jordan won. Well, <laughs> folks, thanks so much for listening. My name's Jordan Rontalk. <laughs> I'm Alex Heigl. I will catch you next time. I... <sighs> Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.